it's still rock and roll to me, and we'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. This episode is brought to you by TrueFire. Do you want to learn guitar or improve your playing? Are you stuck in a rut and unable to take your playing to the next level? TrueFire has your solution. Over 2 million guitar players worldwide learn, practice, and play with TrueFire. Our learning tools and massive library of video lessons will ignite your technical skills, harmonic knowledge, rhythm playing, and soloing chops. Progress faster with private one-on-one instruction, group lessons, multi-track video jams, live streams, song lessons, student forums, TrueFire's Riff magazine, premium jam tracks, and much, much more. Grab your guitar and ignite your musicality. Sign up free for an all-access trial today. Click the link in the description to find out more. groups has passed welcome my friends to another episode of the mind dog tv podcast um bad sad news tonight uh ronnie specter has passed and um you know it's getting to the point where i hate to say this we the baby boomer generation are getting old we're gonna have to start getting used to uh the people we grew up with and loved and were just a really important part of our lives um Dropping like flies, and it seems like that's starting to happen more and more often, and it's a sad thing, uh, especially for people uh, who grew up influenced by the sound, you know, queen of the girl groups, uh, that sound of the 60s, those, the girl backup singers, and the um, just that whole wall of sound era uh, was a special time in music, and Ronnie Spector will certainly be missed. Uh, I don't want to... Uh, belabor the point but we are sad to hear that news tonight anyway tonight i have uh, a legendary uh drummer in in rock and roll history and part of uh one of the most successful sounds ever in the history of rock and roll for 30 years liberty devito was the driving force behind one of the biggest pop artists of all time with his intense drive endless creativity and new york swagger I call it Long Island swagger, but uh, Liberty created groups for 13 platinum Billy Joel albums and have that have sold over 150 million copies and wrote and performed all the drum parts on 22 of 23 top 40 hits and all of his six Grammy award winning recordings. In addition to his work with Billy Joel, uh, Liberty has also been active, an active session musician working with other big acts such as Carly Simon, Phoebe Snow, Karen Carpenter, Stevie Nicks, Rick Wakeman, Bob James, and Meatloaf. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Liberty DeVito to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Liberty, welcome. How are you, Matt? I'm, uh, it's, it's great to, uh, to see you, and thank you for coming. I have to tell you, uh, when I was a kid, I had a, a drummer who was a mentor to me. He was like five years older than me and in a band. And when in 1978, I was just starting out. And he said, he talking about songwriting, he said, you have to listen to the way 
Billy Joel works with uh, Liberty DeVito in creating groove. Groove is the most important element if you're going to be successful. And don't worry about all these crazy riffs, overplaying stuff, and uh, just listen to how he dances around the tune and builds a song like that. And so you were instrumental in and so inspirational to so many people. And I just want to acknowledge that before we, we, we take off. Well, well, first and foremost, you're still a kid. <laughs> Look at you. You're doing a podcast. Right. <laughs> Come <Yeah>. on. <laughs> no, I am. You're right. There's other people out there with real jobs, you know. <laughs> so you're still a kid. And um, yeah, um, I did. Uh, I did play differently. And that's what Billy loved. I mean, I never took lessons and uh, never studied drums. I don't know how to read music or anything like that. And uh, I remember once telling Billy, I was I'm going to go to Berkeley and I'm going to take lessons and I'm going to, you know, trying to become a better drummer like the, all these other guys. And he begged me, he said, please don't, don't do it. You know, I guess uh, there was an advantage to me uh, of my, my books were records. That's how I learned to play, uh, listening to records. Right. I was going to ask you about that, whether it is an advantage, because I play with drummers who sometimes get trapped in their heads. Yeah. But when I listen to you, I, and it's I'm shocked to find out, uh, I was shocked to find out that you hadn't taken some uh, formal training because you seem to, uh, uh, and I don't even know if, if I start talking this way, cut, go between cut time, double time, all these kinds of changing uh, the groove right in the middle of the song a lot and often. And some of the coolest parts you ever played were on the stuff that weren't the, the hugest hits, like right. Zanzibar, uh, Rosalinda's Eyes, and those things. Uh, so, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm shocked to find out that you weren't classically trained or formally trained in, in any of that stuff. Well, so is it, is it an advantage not to be caught in your brain? <laughs> well, I'm, I, I was fortunate to grow up in the 60s. That, that's when, you know, I, I was a teenager, and the bands back then would would like doing a lot of jamming we would sit down and when i got to jam with vinnie martell from the vanilla fudge we would play one song one chord and just change the beat after playing the the, the same way for 10 minutes then change the beat again you know to like a shuffle then change it again to a slow blues the same chord same thing but being able to change all that stuff and taking it different places you know so going into the studio uh you you just tend to be able to take a song to a different place than you would normally think about taking a song. And Billy allowed me to do that. Yeah. Well, uh, I know you were a big Beatle fan. It's just about everybody from our generation uh, is influenced by the Beatles and Ringo and all that stuff. You had to have seen Get Back, yes? I did. Yes, yeah. I did. And what, what was the coolest thing for people like me to see was the Paul McCartney's process of hammering out a song and, and, and just trying to figure out uh, where it was going in the studio. Like, it wasn't pre-written. When you, in those sessions with Billy Joel especially, and I'll talk about some of the other people, because Karen Carpenter was known to be a really fine drummer, so I was wondering what it's like to play with her. But starting with Billy, when you sat in a, in a studio with him, first of all, did he come completely... Um, with the the song completely worked out and ideas about the groove and all that stuff, or did it evolve in the way we saw Paul McCartney kind of evolving in Get Back? When when we started uh, an album, Billy would come in with maybe two, three songs that were finished, and but he always had these ideas. He um, never threw away ideas, and um, he kept them on a little tape recorder. So he would come in with an idea on the first day, 
And he would just play this little idea. And the band would then start to build on the idea. And if the idea started to really start to swing, that night he would go home and finish the song. Because he wow. knew that he had something there and the band could take it over the top. Right. So wow, that's cool, man. So, so, oh, go ahead. so to compare it to uh, Get Back, it was just like when Paul comes up with, uh, with the song Get Back or John is singing. And we did a lot of fooling around like they did. The only thing that we had uh, that was an advantage was Phil Ramone, our producer in the studio, kind of kept the reins on us. And he would let us, we would fool around and laugh and joke and waste time and stuff like that. But then Phil would put us back on track where the Beatles didn't have that. Somebody pushing them back on track because they were the Beatles, you know. Right. Uh, in your book, because uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Phil Ramone ended up uh, being the producer. But in your book, uh, it's Life, uh, Billy, in the Pursuit of Happiness. And it's available at the link below. I want people to check it out. And I don't want to give away too much in the book. But in the book, right in the beginning, you talk about um, the possibility of George Martin uh, producing the thing. But George wanted to use, uh, like, English studio musicians or, or yeah. something. And But Billy was uh, adamant about using you guys in the band. And Phil Ramone took over. Have you ever really thought about how uh, how things would have been much different had had that decision not be made and, and George Martin, because you were still going to play the, the songs live with Billy, no matter yeah. who recorded that album, would your life and career have been, uh, and Billy's music been much different uh, and maybe not even gone as far as it did if George Martin was the producer? Well, you know, I think there was an example of what the music would have been like uh, uh, on the first two albums on Piano Man and, and Street Life Serenade. Those were recorded with all studio musicians. Ron Tutt was the drummer on those tracks. You know, he played with Elvis, and he did a lot of recording sessions. But um, the thing was that, that Billy, when he brought us on board, we were already a band. We were called Topper. We were, we were the band. We had been playing for years. So we were tight, and he knew it. So uh, um, when he said to George Martin, love me, love my band, he loved the tightness and the camaraderie and everything that was going for him. And he kind of knew he had something going there. So right. when, we, when we went in the studio and Phil Ramon was like, these guys are rock and roll animals. You know, he just had to kind of calm us down just a little bit because we were making a record and not playing live. Right. But he, when we went in the studio, he said, do what you do live. Just think about it, you know, while you're doing it. Right. Yeah. You know, one of the funniest things was your, the re, uh, revelation that you were the drummer for Topper because I was a kid and I used to underage uh, sneak into Tabard's Ale House in Wontaw. That was the place to go in the early 70s yeah. in that time for me. And I was a teenager and that's the first place I ever went. I saw Topper at least five or six times, never realizing that you were the drummer until I read the book. I was like, holy crap. That yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, another band that I mentioned in the book, Blue Hair, that was the top 40 band that I played. We, we played the Tabitha House all the time. The wow. Tabitha House, like you say, was the place to go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, South Shore, Long Island, in the early and mid 70s, it was definitely the place for all kinds of live music, but you always saw good music there. So, yeah. A good revelation there. Uh, people want, and I, I know you've probably been asked about it so many times, and I'm reluctant to even go there. But I think just to get it, the, the elephant in the room, yeah. the whole when the when the relationship with the Billy Joel band fell apart, and uh, I know you found out in a very uh, kind of 
strange way that you weren't invited to his wedding and all that. But, yeah. but did you ever get it? And uh, I know because I know you've reconciled with him to some point where he yeah. he, uh, he wrote the forward to your book. Yeah. But did you ever get a, a good reason why? Well, um, the reason I'll tell you, I'll say it this way was a she said, he said kind of thing. Um, somebody said something to him. What he should have done was come to me and asked me if it was true or not. What I should have done was stood in his driveway and stopped him when he was leaving his driveway and said, what's going on? What seems to be the problem? But we were both like the, hey, freak you guys. You know, right. like, you know, he wants to get rid of me. So what? He's, he'll never do anything again. He stinks, you know, and, and he was the same way. Like, I don't need him. You know, yeah, but, but a lot of people get in his in his ear, you know, and they say things. I remember when I was in the band playing uh, the, the, a lot of them. I was the only one left from the original band. I was the only one connected to the records. And a lot of the guys, they were striving to get to my spot and they would like screw around and say things and stuff just to get to my spot. Right. You know, so. Yeah, I, I get it. And I think this that's an important message for young people in bands even today but anybody in the creative life is that people are complicated communication is important but that exactly the same kind of thing happens in every band at some point it's it is like it's like a family or a, a marriage in some respects and you you get this kind of things going on and people talking and the drummer i mentioned who who uh, got me into listening to you to kind of figure out how to uh, establish groove. That guy was a drummer in my band and we broke up, that band broke up and he got mad at me and wanted to kill me at some point. My life tried to run me over. So the point is, you know, bands are full of this kind of drama and stuff, but communication and, and lack of direct communication sometimes is definitely the cause of it. So, I, you know, I just want to kind of put that out there because people will take sides on this and, and hear your story. And I know people have heard your story. And come back and like Billy Joel's a bad guy. Liberty, you know, all, you know that. Well, li listen, uh, I I said my piece and was able to um, say how I felt about things uh, in the uh, documentary Hired Gun. You right. know, me and Russell were, were in that. And um, but when I wrote the book, you know, it started out as as a, uh, a, a family history for my children. You know, I have four daughters, and um, as I was going along. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to interview my parents. My father lived until he was 91 years old. My mother till she was 89. So I got a lot of information about how they grew up and what kind of people they were like as they were growing up. But then um, I, w I first started writing the book, and I was, like, really angry that me and Billy had split up. But then me, Richie Kanata, Russell Chavez, and the late Doug Stegmaier were inducted into Long Island Music Hall of Fame. I didn't want to go. I wasn't going to go. I had it with the Billy thing. And I remember a guy from the drum company, he told me, he goes, do you really want to go back there again? Because they wanted us to play a song, you know? So I was like, oh, no, you're right. I don't want to go back there again. I want to forget it. And I want to move forward and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I go back there. We play the one song. And uh, the people go crazy. We ended up playing like five songs. And the people went nuts. And they said, why don't you uh, do this? all the time you know there's t tons of tribute bands out there to billy joel you guys are the real thing why don't you do it so we started to put it together i uh was learning the songs and falling in love with them again and i can only remember like playing them in the studio so now i have russell and richie 
and we're playing the songs. And the only thing piece that's missing is the guy I used to look at every night, you know, for 30 years, you know? Right. Uh, and um, so I looked at the, his life, my life, looking at him standing in his shoes. Why did he do the things he did? The guy's had a career for like, what, 50 years now? Right. You've got to move on at some point. You know, you've got to make changes to stay alive in this business. There's so many groups that stay the same. The next album sounds exactly like the album before it. Right. Billy constantly ha had to change. Right. And uh, so, you know, it, sometimes it hurts when you have to cut people. You right. don't mean to hurt them, but what else are you going to do? Right. Yeah, I get it, man. And but so many people don't. And from the fan perspective, they do take sides in this stuff. And I, I equate your situation with Billy to Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm. Yeah. Uh, and and you'll see fans like really viciously on either side of it. And, and it it's it really is equivalent to your uh, situation because. And this comes down to, I wanted to talk to you about this, uh, the idea of songwriting and production. And uh, because a songwriter comes with ideas, chords and lyrics and stuff right. like that, but it's not the song. Those songs don't have the life. They're not a living thing until the band puts them together. So there's this whole uh, conversation about what really is, what part is really writing and, and what you do is really uh composition and writing or uh, even though you're not writing notes uh, like uh melody notes right. but or, or harmony any of that stuff but you are contributing to the writing of the song yes that's that's your yeah well but in court the a song is the lyrics and chords right that's it not arrangement i mean especially being a drummer you can't copyright anything maybe the guy that played on Wipeout, maybe he could copyright that. <laughs> yeah. but, but it's like we, we have no, um, no notes. You know, we, we actually do. When you, you put the toms in this stuff, there, there's notes there, right. but it's not like a melody. There's no melody. That's what we, we don't have that, so we can't copyright anything. It's yeah. very difficult. But, yeah, you're right. Um, uh, Billy's first manager told me on the phone when I was going after him, and I didn't go after him for songwriters royalties. I went after him for intellectual property uh, stuff. You know, uh, the, the Sony was holding stuff and, and, and things. I wasn't getting the money that I was supposed to get. So, um, and Billy's first manager told me, she said, I heard those songs when he left the house. And then I heard them when he came home at night. There was a big difference. Of course. Yeah, I, and I could see that. And that's why I was talking about process, because I'm sure he didn't have all that groove and all the life that, you know, you can't do that on a piano. Really, uh, come like especially those songs that I mentioned that are not the hits that everybody's aware of. The stuff on 52nd Street were some of the most creative and, and really musically inspiring stuff for musicians out of all the work he's done. Uh, and a lot of those weren't the big hits, but right. so I'm sure they didn't feel Rosalinda's eyes didn't feel like that. Even just the way you are did not have that uh, that groove. That no, didn't. right? No, that was built in the studio between me and Phil Ramone. I remember him looking through the glass and and doing that little flip thing. And, and you know, fortunately enough, I had played weddings and I had a brush and a stick in my hand like a bossa nova, right. and uh, you know, so. That that led to that groove. I mean, Billy writes in the beginning in the forward about what I actually did for his songs, which right. is the first time I ever heard that. But it was pretty amazing to me. 
Yeah, so he uh, he's obviously grown it somewhat and and probably felt some of um the pain of the separation too and and understand it now. I'm not putting I'm not assuming that but I guess I am in a little bit of a way but you think he he has kind of grown from from all of his stuff and feel some regret about uh the bad blood that happened for that time well, in your life. I think his 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 first inkling of what I did for him was on the River of Dreams album because uh you know, he went, we, me and uh, the other guys that were in the band at the time recorded uh, probably about seven of those songs that are on River of Dreams in this place called The Boathouse. Then he got Danny Krochmeyer to come in to produce, and Danny brought all his own guys in. Uh, By the time they were ready to hand the, the album into Sony Records, Billy, uh, two of the songs, River of Dreams and uh, All About Soul, had to be sent out to another producer to give them that hip-hop feel and, and that whole thing. A guy called Joe the Butcher in Philadelphia. And then Billy decided to use the Shades of Grey version that we did in the boathouse and put it on the album instead of what they did. Wow. So I, I think he felt that whole, like, uh, you know, this isn't as good as it would have been. Right. You know, so then when, when uh, we had that little falling out and misunderstanding... And then he went on the road. It was like, okay, this is easy enough. I don't have to rehearse. These guys had played the show before. I don't, I'm not creating any new music. You know, I really don't need the guys that I created it with. So, you know, I can do this for the rest of my life. I'll play in Madison Square Garden once a month. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a guy, Justin Hawkins, who's a, um, a, kind of a heavy metal, you know, latter-day heavy metal guy who's uh, got a YouTube channel. And I follow him. And he talks about stuff. He was talking about the Coldplay uh, thing the other day and made a point that because Coldplay decided that they're going to stop recording in 2025. And he said, that's a genius move because fans don't care about anything but your first 10 or 12 albums. Anyway, what they come to the concerts for after that, they're not, nobody comes to see the Rolling Stones now to hear anything they did from 1983 to, to now. They all want only want to hear the hits. Do you find that to be valid? And particularly in the case of somebody like Billy Joel, if he would have kept recording because somebody brought this up to me today, like, is he afraid that he just can't have hits and he won't be the hit maker that he used to be? I don't think that's it. I think the fans really just want the hits and don't, aren't really interested in new music at some point. Do you agree with that or disagree? No, I do agree with it. And I think a lot of bands should have stopped a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, look at Elton. I mean, he's a genius, but he's still putting out stuff. And it's not like the old stuff. The old right. stuff was had that spark, had that fire. You know, Billy, the song that I play on River of Dreams is called Shades of Grey. And, and it's about, like, looking at life. When you were younger, there was just black and white. You, you either thought there should be a war or there shouldn't be a war. You were uh, for something or you were against something. You know, now you're like, well, I'm for it, but uh, maybe I don't really not, don't like this part of it. Or, you know, there's a lot of gray and it's very difficult to write when there's gray. Right, because, but that's a great message for these times that we're living in right now because everybody is a, a living in a black and white world. You see, either left or right, nobody understands that nuance of gray anymore. <laughs> right, so <laughs> it makes it difficult, you know. Uh, 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 some things, the, one of the lines there, so, so most things are clear with the vision of youth. You know, right. you think like, that's it, but now it's like, oh, well, you know, I don't know if I really want to do that, but um, no, I don't think um, I don't think that he would 
I don't know about that. I, I don't know if he'd write the songs like, you know. Yeah. You know, this, like Zanzibar, like you said, uh, that, that's that's a really good one. Until the Night, relationship songs. Now you're yeah. like, now you're like, you want to leave me? I don't care anymore. I'm going. You know. <laughs> I was listening to uh, uh, Until the Night be- uh, a couple of days ago, and I thought somebody ripped this song off. I'm like, who? This song is. Somebody ripped this song off, and it came down to me that it was, uh, it was the hit on uh, for Cindy Lauper, but it Jules Stern who wrote it uh, all through the night. Just the, the hook sounds exactly like <laughs> yeah. it until the night. So you brought that up. So yeah. you mentioned your father early. I I met your father. Uh, my mom knew him. She worked with him. Oh, really? And then, yeah, it's kind of funny because at one point when the band broke up and I didn't have a drummer, she said, why don't you call Vincent and ask him if you could get his son to play? I said, Ma, <laughs> do you you realize? <laughs> because there's a line in your your book where I, I wouldn't have done anything different. Well, I would have uh, one, maybe one thing different. I would have played in the Beatles. And that reminded me of that because it's like, you know what? That would be like me calling uh, uh, Paul McCartney and saying, you know what? Uh, could you Can you join my band? Like, uh, Do you know who, who Vincent's son? is <laughs> right. that's funny <laughs> that's funny yeah, yeah. um yeah uh, you should have called <laughs> but but yeah right but you uh you come from a blue collar background and your dad kind of and i think we all did the long yeah. island people who came out to long island from brooklyn all shared this experience especially the, the italian americans who <laughs> came out and, but yeah. our, our families came from blue blue collar uh and you said i want to be a musician and your father said what he said what are you going to do you want to dig ditches for the rest of your life you know, <laughs> yeah he said that you know it's funny because when i said uh when i wanted to play drums i don't know why i was the drums and I, I say this in the book too i don't know why the drums but later on in my career i said to my father I said, why did you buy me drums why did you buy me drums and he said because they didn't make prozac when you were a kid so i guess i was pretty like crazy all over the place you know you know what they should try that instead of uh over drugging kids with adhd Definitely. And all that. yeah get them a drum set it will drive the parents crazy but at least the kid will have an outlet for all that extra energy exactly exactly yeah. but yeah um it was interesting uh so um um and your career has not been all about Billy Joel obviously I mentioned no. some people you played with before the one that really uh, well there's several in there that I'm really interested in uh but Karen Carpenter I know she was a drummer and she was a really good drummer from what I can tell so playing with her uh, any um unique challenges or or kind of was she uh trying to dictate to you or just letting you be you <laughs> Karen Karen was a beautiful woman and um you know she she her soul was like she sang that's what she did she sang like a hummingbird she was beautiful we joked with her we laughed with her you know i would call her at night when we were on the road when we'd get really you know out of it and <laughs> call her at night and ask what she's wearing uh, you know we'd say <laughs> she would say Are you, do you have those little uh you know those bunny pajamas on with the feet, you know, at the, <laughs> anyway, um, she was just a beautiful soul, a really beautiful soul. And no, she let us, she let me do whatever I wanted to, you know? Wow. She That's lo- kind of unusual though. Isn't it like most drummers who are songwriters have a, uh, I know what I, I know what this song needs and, and what's going to serve the song best now. Yeah, they do. But th- don't forget we have Phil Ramon in there too. You know, so, yeah. so, so, uh, Another, you know, I, I want to say, you know, with, with Ronnie's passing, Ronnie Spector's passing, 
Ronnie, I played with her for like years, uh, right after Billy and me parted ways. Ronnie actually, you know, you're kind of lost when that bubble pop, pops. Yeah. And Ronnie Spector gave me new life when, when uh, I got on with her and played, you know, all over the world with her. And, and she was a fantastic lady to work for. Right. Did you go through a, a depression part or, or, or kind of like a, a, a like soul searching part? When we're, Because you're a rock star, you're t touring the world with one of the most successful acts in the history of music. And then all of a sudden that's not there. I got to got to think that you, that leaves an emptiness in your life. Right? Oh, you're, you're Liberty DeVito. And then you're Liberty DeVito. And then, <laughs> then you're Liberty DeVito again. <laughs> you, know, you know, when they say the same, be nice to the people you um, when you're growing up because you're going to see them coming down again. Yeah. Well, I've always been nice to everybody. But, you know, I had a hard time finding out who I was, uh, you know, because you never hear what you do. If it, The only time you hear how you played is if you do something wrong. Right. The, the single turn around and go, that sucks, man. That was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, yeah. uh, so um, I, I couldn't find out like who I was or, or what did I do? And, uh, you know, everybody said, oh, you had this great career. You're, yeah, but I, I was behind this guy. It was his name, you know, up there. Until I, I, I got in touch with uh, uh, a guy from Sabian Symbols. Wayne Blanchard was his name. And he said to me, he said, look, the first thing you got to do is stop saying that you were formerly Billy Joel Strummer. He goes, no, you were the guy that Billy Joel chose to create those incredible hits and unforgettable tours. That's who you are. Right. And it was once I had that, it was like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, I'm still around. I'm on the radio all the time. You know, it doesn't matter if I don't play with them anymore. We're still on the radio. I'm still recognized. Out of all the bands that are out there now, maybe Max Weinberg is the other guy that's, that's recognized. That's, yeah. And you know what? You have a lot in common with him in, in, in that regard, too. But uh, it seemed like Billy and, and Bruce Springsteen both kind of uh, decided that they needed their own band at the same time and both kind yeah. of decided to kind of destroy their band at the same time. Like they went through a lot of that. Yeah. But, maybe yeah. it's the genius in them that thinks like, oh, I'm going to try this in a different way. You know, well, they, maybe it's just boredom, the boredom of it, like, yeah. and you know, all that. There's so many things that go into it, but no smoke, man. Uh, after Ringo, I, I would say you're the most uh, influential drummer in uh, pop rock music of, of you know that uh, of the uh, 20th century. Uh, after Ringo, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think like Ringo. There's an advantage to not knowing what you're doing. <laughs> right. And that that's, yeah, Ringo was a field player. And that's that's really, right. when if, if I, I play with drummers all the time, sub-drummers, because, you know, often in, in the, the circuit that I play, you know, the money isn't enough to cancel uh, anniversary dinner with the wife. So we got to get a sub-drummer. Right. And when we get them, you can tell the ones who think and the ones who are schooled from the guys who just play from the heart and, and have the feel for it. Right. And those guys are, are the easiest to play with. You, you can feel confident calling any song. And and so I think there is a distinct advantage to that. I just wanted to get it directly from you. So I, for I think here. I think one of the worst things that are happening to drummers right now is YouTube. Because uh, what you see on YouTube is these drummers going mad, like just playing really fast and all this impossible stuff and the double bass drum pedal and stuff like that, which you will never, ever use in a song. Yeah. You know, you'll use a double bass drum pedal 
uh, in a heavy metal band or, or, or something like that. You know, uh, 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 Nico McBrain, I saw him do a, a, a modern drama festival this year and he used the double pedal. And it was like, yeah, okay, Nico does that metal music and, and yeah, it's cool. But why would I use the Billy Joel double yeah. pedal? You know? Right, yeah, absolutely. And the guys that you were, you know, the music that you grew up with in that era, um, there wasn't a whole lot of finesse, like, because some of the songs like Honesty, um, uh, Rosalinda's Eyes, Just the Way You Are, they have this kind of almost jazz feel to them. So, right. And there wasn't a lot of that going on on the radio. So what, where did you get that from? Who, well, who would, well there, was, there was this whole pop feel going on in the, in the city studios uh, with Steve Gadd and, and all those guys, that, that band stuff that Gadd had with Richard T. And, right. and, uh, you know, and Phil was producing those guys too. And Phil come off of Sinatra and, and Streisand. And, so he knew that stuff. He kept us this rock band, but enhanced it with the stuff that he knew, like right. Zanzibar. Yeah, we, when Billy said, I got a jazz guitar, when he first did the demo, when, we, when he came in and we first ran it by, there was no line like that. Then he came in with this, I got a jazz guitar. And it was like, you know what? We could do a solo and play jazz. We could play a really fast swing thing on, you know. And then Phil's like, let's get Freddie Hubbard to play the trumpet on it. You know, yeah. it's a really cool jazz piece. Yeah, uh, uh, incredible uh, experience playing with for and with one of the greatest producers of all time. Not just yeah. one of the greatest songwriters of all time, but one of the greatest producers of all time. Uh, do you ever pinch yourself and say, wow, this has been a magical ride. I would have never imagined this for myself when I was a kid that all these kinds of amazing, uh, this amazing life happened to me. Well, you know, it, it's fun. Uh, you, you don't realize it until it's over. And, and you know, I was writing down uh, uh, my, my biography and, and um, I was writing down things that I did. And I was thinking, I don't know, I didn't do much. What did I do? I played drums for Billy Joel. We went to Russia. And then somebody said, you know, you played on like uh, four Grammy award winning albums. And you played on, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I did. You played on 22 of his 23 biggest hits. Oh yeah, I did that too. You know, <laughs> you don't think about that stuff, right? Uh, but I, I was witness to like what in small, smaller time than Beatlemania. But people, I, when I was a kid, I was working in, in Roosevelt Field Mall in a, a store called Matthew Music, and you were there. Your wife was shopping, and you were uh, trying to get you know what most husbands do when their wife is shopping. Uh, I'm going to go to the music store. I'm just gonna, whatever. And but the the guys who worked there were all over you, like you like you were like it was Beatlemania, like oh rock stars here. So there, there must have been some acknowledgement of or. Uh, that your life was special even at that point or no, you were oblivious to it because you were living the life day to day. And that was common. Yeah. It, it, that it wasn't common. That was sometimes it, it's kind of weird. It feels weird. Like, come on, I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm just <laughs> doing what I love to do, right. you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, people like uh, uh, giving you awards and all this kind of stuff. It's like, ah, you know, I've seen these other drums are so much better than me. That's why I always say like, I, I, I'm not really a drummer. I just play one on stage, right. you know. <laughs> Imposter syndrome. I think it's, it's yeah. good to good to hear that somebody who's accomplished what you have accomplished also gets uh, that because so many people get it and don't realize they're not alone in that. Dude, I can't play a buzz roll. You know, I can't play a double stroke roll. I don't do that. They say, what rudiments do you use? 
what rudiments do I have? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> triplet? You know, flam? Right. You became a songwriter, though, I, I, at least, uh, um, I mean, with melody and harmony, at least that's what I believe, because I uh, the, just the other day I saw a link to, and I listened to it uh, yesterday, I think, a girl, um, girl from Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. Create, uh, and Sarah. it says written by Liberty DeVito, so you play other instruments other than drums now, I guess. I, right? I do. I, I could play a guitar, enough guitar to play the chords. And, uh, you know, Sarah, uh, I met her on Facebook. And she was a singer. I heard her sing, and she was fabulous. Links. I said, "I got, I got a song. You want to try to sing it?" And I sent it to her, and it turned, it turned out like that. Uh, I was really surprised. But also, I, I play with the band The Slim Kings, which is uh, myself, uh, Andy Astanasio, and Michael Sacklerburner, and we um, write our own tunes. And we've had placements on on a whole bunch of TV shows and stuff like that. Wow. You know, yeah, we're all involved in the writing of that part. You know. Cool. Uh, Long Island uh, Music Hall of Fame. Now, I was around when, when Richard LaHamadou was starting that thing. And I, I remember saying to him, how many musicians on Long Island could there be to have a, actually justify a Hall of Fame? And, and he blew up. He was like, are you kidding me? And he started going down the list. So you're in there now and you're yeah. with a lot of people. But uh, I just talk a little bit about because uh, I think you've got to understand that it being into, in, inducted into that thing, just how rich the musical uh, legacy of Long Island is and how many great players from, from this area there are. Oh, it, it's unbelievable, you know, the players that we hear. Well, you know, growing up in the 60s, uh, when I was still too young to go into uh, bars or clubs and stuff like that, I would go see so many bands. There was the Action House in, in Oceanside had so many bands played there. I mean, I played with uh, Richie Super. Uh, we, ha we had a band called Super's Jamboree. Richie was from uh, Massapequa. He was in a band called The Rich Kids, which were around the same time as The Rascals and The Vanilla Fudge and all that kind of stuff. And then he went on to write songs like uh, Amazing and uh, uh, Roll Away the Stone for Aerosmith. Wow. And stuff like, you know. So, yeah, there's so many of that guy. Twisted Sister. How many guys come out of there? You know, uh, The Good Rats. Right. Uh, uh, what's the cowbell song? Well, um, uh, uh, Leslie uh, Mountain is that? We're talking about yeah, Mountain, Mississippi Queen, Mississippi <laughs> Queen, and then there's uh, Blue Oyster Cult. The other right. cowbell song. Oh yeah, song. right. Yeah, the yeah. other uh, yeah. Reaper. Don't right. feel the Reaper. Reaper. <laughs> they, they have recorded everything on Long Island. You know. Yeah. There's tons of bands from Long Island. Wow. Stray uh, Cats. Stray Cats. Uh, Brian Setzer. Massapequa. Right. Yeah. Uh, what what community on Long Island did you grow up in? Was It, it wasn't Hicksville, right? Or, or Levittown? It wasn't one of those. No, Seaford. Seaford, oh, uh, yeah, right in between Massapequa and Montauk. I play there a lot now. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ryan's? Uh, what, what, Ryan's. Uh, what's the name of the place? Uh, Sunset Grill. I was just there two oh, weeks ago. I should know that. That's on Merrick Road, isn't it? Uh, no, Sunset, Sunrise Highway. Oh, okay. It's, in between, it's like in between Massapequa and Seaford, but it, it's called Seaford. Yeah. When yeah. I was with that uh, Top 40 band, we played a lot of clubs around there. The yeah. White Whale was down in, in Seaford Harbor, really small place. There was only three of us in the band, so we could charge, you know, a dollar to get in. We'd be rich going home, you know. Right. Place would be jam-packed. Yeah. Uh, have you ever been at a, at a wedding and heard people playing your songs and just, like, uh, had to shake your head and say, oh, my God, he's butchering my boss? Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Most people play it wrong, my part. 
you know, because uh, in the beginning I was playing it wrong. It wasn't playing it the way it is on the record. We were playing it more like uh, you are the sunshine of my life, that Stevie Wonder tune. You know, it's yeah. playing more of that kind of thing. But now when I see people play it, they play it like that. You know, they yeah. don't realize that the, the bass drum is on three. Right. You know, yeah. and that little flip pop, boom, boop, you know, that thing. And they, they, they miss it. They yep. miss it. They, you know, uh, moving out. When they play moving out, they play 16s on the hi-hat. It's not. It's just straight. Dun, 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 dun. Why should I play 16s when Billy was playing them, you know? Right. Yeah, and instinctually, that's that's what I was talking about before, where I, I said, well, how can he not have formal training? Because instinctually, uh, if you're just playing by feel, you want to play that 16th note, but you have if you think about it and you say, well, he's already playing that, I'm going to cut it in half, it, may, it makes it so much more full of life but right. that, that that's a rare thing for drummers to have that to go with us and it's not it's not a common thing to get have that intelligence about what serves the song best right? yeah well they get, they get caught up in the learned thing you right know, they learn when, when you learn you put yourself in a box of not being able to invent because you're playing what you have learned usually yeah. when you don't know what you're doing you start to come up with stuff, you know, like this in hired gun. There's that great thing where, where now Kenny Aronoff, great friend of mine, he, he went to college and, and he knows a lot about music and stuff like that. But when he walked in and John Cougar Mellencamp had uh, Jack and Diane and they wanted him to play a solo in the beginning, in the middle of it. And he talks about this in, in, in hired gun. And, and as he's walking to the drum set, he's going, what am I going to do? A solo in a ballad? What? And he says, man, you got 20 feet before for the rest of your career. Okay, 10 feet before your career is over. You better think of something quick. And, you know, and then an idea clicked in his head, and he came up with that part, which is brilliant. Oh, man, it really you know? is. It, it was really like is. his wheels had a turn. He had to forget what he learned and, and put in what would fit in that hole. It reminds me a lot of the end, uh, Ringo Starr's uh, drum solo. Ringo's another guy who wasn't big on drum solos no. and hated them. But the end, that... <laughs> yeah, it, it's simple, but it's it's perfect and, yeah. and, and magical in a lot of ways. Um, you, like I, grew up hiding under your desk uh, with duck and cover and, and thinking the Soviet Union was going to uh, annihilate us all. And yeah. then you had the opportunity to go there. Uh, and aside from the music, what was that experience like? Well, it was, it was actually um, to see another superpower that you always thought would be just like you. They're a superpower. You know, they've got the same equipment that they're willing to throw at you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at, at any given moment. So they must be huge. It must be a great place to live. And you go there, and it's like, I don't want to knock Mexico, but it was like Mexico, going to Mexico, going over the border, you know? Right. It was like a third world country with a bomb. Wow. And I was shocked. I was shocked how poor people were, how they waited on lines to get just a loaf of bread, or they wouldn't even know it was at the end of the line. They just were on the line to get what they were giving out and then would trade it for something else that they needed. Yeah. You know? 
Uh, did you get any time to actually experience, uh, or would maybe didn't want to? Maybe you wanted just to stay in your hotel room. But did you get any uh, time to actually experience the country, and uh, other than playing music and go out and meet people and be and see the culture? Oh yeah, when we were in Georgia, which was part of the Soviet Union at that time, we went. To, uh, we did an impromptu show. You know, we were just supposed to go to this uh, 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 this. Uh, thing up on a hill and just sing with these guys that used to sing this these notes that would heal people. They would put their hands on people and solo, you know. They were Gregorian chants they were doing, and they would heal people. So we went there. I went there for uh, to, for comic relief for Billy because I can't sing. But um, after that, uh, we did a, a, an impromptu show because a radio station had announced that the American poet was in town and he was going to give a lecture, you know, but it turned into a show, but the, uh, the whole band wasn't even there. So we wow. had to use a bass player from, from a music school uh, to play with us. And anyway, after that, we went to a party with these guys that sang this Gagarian chant. And it was pretty crazy, you know, to learn about what they were under. And I remember, you know, they were really nice to us and everything and i said wow you russian people are really nice and one guy looked at me he goes we are not russian we are georgian yeah it's like oh okay (laughs) i get that with ukrainian yeah all of all the former soviet republics don't want to be called russian i've learned that from uh the one incident that i gotta ask you about there because it's uh, i've seen it and there's been some confusion about it and i was talking to a friend about it the other day was when billy joel lost his mind a little bit uh with, with lost his temper and over uh, picked up a piano and threw it i mean you don't think a little guy like that has the strength to do that well you gotta remember it was a cp80 it wasn't a grand piano it was like an electric baby grand though no ah it was it wasn't that heavy <laughs> okay but the band Seem to like just be playing along and like oh, uh, uh, like just keep playing. Like it, you, you didn't seem phased by well, him. <laughs> well, what what happened was um, they were filming the show, right? Uh, <clears throat> it cost so much money to go there that the only way he could recoup money was would be to uh, put out an album and and put out a video of, right. of the show, you know, a documentary kind of thing. So they're filming the shows. Now they never told him that they were going to turn the lights on to because they could see better. You could see the right, audience. The audience right. When the lights were out, the audience would stand up and start dancing. As soon as the lights went on, the soldiers would push them down into their chairs, just shove them down in their chairs. So we're up there and, and, and we're dying. But we can see that when the lights are out, the people are getting up and they're starting to dance and go crazy. So when they turn the lights on, every time... Billy is yelling, you're ruining my show. You're, you're killing the show. And the light lines on, it just has his head down, you know, because he's concentrated. He's got the headphones on. He's talking to the guys in the spotlights and stuff like that. So to get the lighting designer's attention, he flipped the piano over. <laughs> and all you could hear, I hear on my monitor, I'm playing, all I hear is boom. And I thought, what was that? <laughs> you know, you check your bass drum for us. That <laughs> and then I see him like walking, like really angry across the front of the stage. You know, um, so he got his attention and they didn't turn the lights on anymore. And then the rest of the shows that we did were a total success. 
we had the soldiers on the stage twirling their hats and throwing them out to the crowd. Was there any like KGB waiting for you behind, backstage to kind of say that was no comrade? We don't throw <laughs> pianos here. No, 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 no. The only time we got in trouble once was was in Mexico. Uh, somebody threw in a Mexican flag on on the stage, and Billy put it around his neck and just marched across the stage with the and uh, they wrote it was a disgrace to the flag, and it was it didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, you know, you know what was funny on, on the, there's a YouTube clip of of that incident in uh, in the soviet union and what's yeah. funny about it is when he yells it uh turn off the lights he yells it in the key you're playing some kind of fantasy it's yeah, just a yeah, fantasy yeah. and he does it in the key of the song he yells <laughs> in his singing voice and, <laughs> and and perfectly on pitch it's it's incredible i think people should check it out anyway yeah uh, <laughs> that was a, that was a, that was quite a treat that <laughs> yeah uh so now you're playing with Lords of, of, of uh, 52nd Street. Now, yes. it, it features you and Richie Cannata and, and Russell Javis. Uh, yep. Is there a singer in it who's... Uh, oh, who's, yeah. Uh, uh, a... Yeah, we got this kid, Dan Orlando, uh, from New Jersey. You know, he was beating around, you know, uh, the music scene. And um, he does the Billy parts. He plays the piano and he sings. Wow. And uh, Yeah, and he does it well. We got Malcolm Gold, who, who plays uh, the bass. He everybody is connected somehow to Billy, uh, Malcolm uh, and Dennis Delgadio and uh, uh, um, who else was in the band? Uh, Dave Keys. They all played the um, the uh, show. What was it called? What was it called? Moving out the play. Yeah, uh, the yeah. Broadway show. Yeah, they all played that that show. So okay. they knew the book. You know, they don't have to read anything. They know the book. And we play it like we were, were we played it in the seventies, full right. on, full bore, bam, let's go for it. Very cool. So, and yeah, uh, I just want to plug your gig because you got one coming up. Uh, oh yeah, actually next Saturday, uh, January twenty second, Ridgefield Playhouse in New Jersey. Uh, I guess that's in Ridgefield. <laughs> oh, Connecticut. I'm sorry, it's not yeah. New Jersey. Why did I think it was uh, New Jersey? I don't know. <laughs> You're dyslexic. Yeah, I am. I guess. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, uh, thanks. I want to uh, find out about that. Now, what is your, uh, you mentioned tribute bands, and there's, got, there's probably about a thousand of them uh, or playing Billy Joel stuff. Do you have any uh, um, take on the, the popularity of tribute bands? Because when you, well, you mentioned the 60s when all those, there was club scenes happening. We didn't have tribute bands in those days, right? So, no, we were, we were cover bands in those days. Right. We covered the different material from all different kinds of bands. Right. This time they got a band that plays one style of music, just like Billy Joel music or Eagles music or, you know. It's like, I, I don't get it. The Eagles are still touring. Why, you know, Billy's playing at the Garden. And so we're the real guys that play the music. So we can't, I can't be a tribute to myself. Well, I'm right. not, we're not a tribute band. We are right. the guys that played on the record. Right. You know, I, I know that um, uh, Danny Krochmeyer with uh, uh, Russ Kunkel and they, they have the family, the family or something like that. Yeah, they go yeah. around and tour and they play all the records that they played on, which, which is, makes more sense than a bunch of guys getting together and playing the songs really bad. Right, yeah, Leland yeah. Scar is playing in something like that yeah, too. That's yeah, that's the yeah. same thing. That's the yeah, same thing yeah. that he's in. Um, yeah. And um, you know, so tribute bands, I had a problem with them for a long time, and I didn't want to hear about it, didn't want to see them, nothing. When I still had the falling out with Billy, and I, I had a live coach for a really long time, you know, and she told me, he goes, she said, well, these 
these guys, you know, they're they have an appreciation for your music. They're they're just showing the, the people that they love what you guys did, you know. So I kind of looked at it that way, and it was like, yeah, I guess they do, you know. Yeah, they're keeping and, us alive, you know. Yeah, but I look at it because when I was a teenager, all of a sudden El- Elvis impersonated, and Elvis was almost dead at that point. He was getting close to the point where he OD'd. But there were Elvis impersonators everywhere, and I almost, I still have that connotation in my mind as a, uh, as an artist, like. I get that you can do it exact impersonations, but you know, is that really artistry? And that's my, my, my only, I don't take, I don't have a bone with it as far as how they make their living and what they want to do. And if their fans love it, all that stuff. But I think from an artist's perspective, it just doesn't feel like creating art to me in any way. Well, I, I, I have this friend, uh, Glenn Burtnick, who's in a band called the weaklings and, um, they do all Beatles stuff. And they are fantastic. They they sound really, really, really good. They don't wear the costumes. Right. They change the arrangements up a bit. Yeah. You know, they don't do it exactly like the record. I can't stand these guys. What's the one that keep playing Radio City Music Hall? They're like, if if somebody that doesn't know the Beatles looks at them, they go, What was so big deal about the Beatles? That's not right. that good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh uh, now, the other pivotal moment, other than going to the Soviet Union, is um, you you were still with Billy at the time of uh, 9-11, and then the mm. concert for New York. And my friend Kevin, who's a photographer uh, for Rolling Stone, was, was there when this really uh, Miami uh, 20... Uh, what, what 2017. Is 20, 2017, I couldn't think of that. Yeah, and he had the fireman's helmet on the piano. Uh, t- talk to me about that experience, and, and was it an emotional uh, experience for you playing that concert and, and all the stuff? Because knowing your father was a cop and all that yeah. stuff, it had to bring, uh, it had to mean a lot to you. So Now, now that, that was the concert with no audience, right? We just did yeah. it in the studio and one band right after another, right? Yeah, we did, we did New York State of Mind on the, at that one. We did oh, Miami right. 2017 at the one that Paul McCartney put. Oh yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. New York State of Mind. When we when we were there, we um, right before it started, Bruce Springsteen was the first one to go on, and um, I remember standing next to um, oh, what the heck's her name, country singer that's married to the other country singer. Uh, not Faith Hill. No. Yes, yes, yeah. Faith Hill. <laughs> I was standing next to Faith Hill, who is more beautiful in person than she is on TV. And um, Bruce did uh, "My City in Tears," that that, that song, yeah. and we just everybody in the room just watched it so intensely, like just stared at the screen that we were watching. And I turned to her and I guess I said, "Well, I guess he set the pace," <laughs> you know. And it was like really moving. And, you know, to play to no audience was uh, something else to experience and knowing that you did something. Now, after we did that, the police uh, had known a couple of cops that were there. They took us down to uh, the site, me and Billy and uh, a couple of other guys. And uh, we walked around the site and Billy, we walked up to where they were digging and stuff, and Billy was signing autographs on the on the helmets of uh, the workers, you know. That, and uh, we walked through the place where they had the body parts. We walked through all this stuff, man. It was really, really uh, mentally. Uh, I think it made me like flip out for a little while. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I know. I, and I think Billy did the same thing. 
Because I remember when I, I walked down the street, we had to walk far because they wouldn't, they had all the trucks lined up, you know, taking the, the stuff out. And we walked down and I remember turning the corner and seeing the pile. And I, I just turned around and looked at Billy before he came around the corner. I go, oh my God, what do you see this? And he turned and looked at it and said, those bastards did that? You know, just like that, he said. Right. You know, and it was, it was, whew, it was hard. Um, it, does it feel like 21 years ago? Because for me, it just yeah. seems like yesterday in my mind, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and as you're talking about it, that brings me right back to the feelings that I had at that moment. And yeah. it just, it's, it's strange how, you know, as you get older, it just time goes by in the blink of an eye and all that kind of stuff. So. And, and if you were in the city at the time, you, you could still have that smell. You could smell that smell, that right. electrical burning smell. Yeah. Is there a... Um, because for years and years we've heard about East Coast, West Coast. As far as music, is there a difference between East Coast, New York music and L.A. music and, and all that stuff? Or is it all just music? And the same players kind of end up in both places anyway, right? Well, I don't know about now, but back when we were coming up, um, yeah, there was a big difference, you know, as much as there was a big difference in the uh, baseball rivalry that, that you know, uh, we were from New York. We had a cocky attitude. And, um, you know, like the Eagles are from California. They were kind of like, you know, you call them the Egos and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think that, that, that the, um, the um, California sound kind of put a little damper on rock and roll and true rock and roll because I think they came up with the, the screen in front of the drummer, that plastic screen and in-ears and all that kind of stuff, which kind of takes away that that whole sound off the stage rock and roll right. that, that we had with Billy, because we didn't have any screens or anything like that. Hardly anybody used in ears. We used monitors, you right. know. And um, so it became you you started not to see a band play live and sound better than they did on the record with more energy. Now you see them duplicating the record. Right, you know, which is a drag, and, and some of it, it, yeah, it's done with a lot of uh, extra technology and stuff, and like loops and stuff that go on in the background, and it's not yep. all real life, even though you're seeing live music. To me, I saw a bit uh, here. We had a Beatles uh, tribute, and I won't name them because I don't want to embarrass them. But they came out and they were doing stuff with. I could tell they had you know string sections and all this kind right. of stuff, and it's like that's not you're not really playing that. It's kind of why. Just go up there and lip sync then if you're going to put on all these tracks behind it. All. Yeah, you know, we left it all on the stage when we played. I mean, you know, we gave it 150%. And bands just don't do that anymore. They're, like, sensitive to the hearing. and so I wear hearing aids. I'm, like, deaf. Me from too. It. You, you me, know. me too. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But uh, the only band that I've seen play like that now is the Foo Fighters. Right. I mean... They get up there and it's like, they don't care if they die tonight. I mean, we're going to die on stage. We don't care. We're giving it all we got. Oh, know? my God. You know, Foo Fighters are the the last uh, remaining uh, true remnants of rock and roll. And I, I brought that up the other day. I mean, kismet and things being what they are, fate... I think about uh, Grohl because he was an iconic drummer that uh, influenced a, a whole generation of people right. with his drumming. And then 
now he's a, a singer, songwriter, guitar player who is influencing. You don't see that transition. You see people who play or monthly instrumentals, people who play drums, bass, and guitars and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But you never see people who are influential in one go to become a, a really influential pers- uh, player in another instrument, another genre altogether. So, right. Man. Usually they're just like singers. They go out. And right. sing like like Don Henley or Phil Collins or you know uh, what's his name Aerosmith Stephen Tyler oh, they man. were all drummers before you know Stephen Tyler didn't do much on the drums but Don Henley played for the Eagles and, Phil uh, Collins Phil yeah, Collins oh. you know yeah so yeah. you know but um, what's his name now who are you talking about Ralph <laughs> <laughs> and he see, he seems like a really really down to earth guy. Like he hasn't yeah, let me you know. I, I I went when they played at the uh, uh, it's not Chase Stadium anymore. What's it called? City City Bank Stadium. Whatever. Yeah. Well, anyway. Who can keep up? Yeah, really. So <laughs> I went there and and I went backstage and I met him. And, and the first thing he said to me was, "Wow, I thought you'd be a whole lot bigger with the way you play." You <laughs> know. <laughs> That's that's funny because yeah, uh, you did play with a lot of energy and a lot of thunder on 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 some of you know the the songs that called for a big shot and all that kind of stuff. Right. You know, uh, you did play with a lot of uh, high energy uh, and a lot of thunder and all that kind of stuff. So I know we're, we're I want to be respectful of your time, but I do have a couple more questions for you. Okay, as a guy who I, I you know, spent some time playing some theaters and and arenas and stuff, opening up for major acts. It was a pleasure to me for me to go back to playing clubs and small bars and stuff for that intimate feeling. Have you ever had uh, the inkling to kind of feel feel what it was like back in the beginning and just play a really small, intimate venue like that? Well, I do that now. Uh, with my band, the Slum Kings, we play small places, which I love to do. And with the Lords, we play theaters like a thousand seats and stuff like that, you know, which is much not. I hated playing uh, outdoor stadiums. That yeah. that was a drag. You, didn't, you had no connection with the crowd at all. Nothing. Right. You and know. Well, who's the other band that you're playing the small stuff with? I I know about the Lords of Flatbush. You're playing with a, a different band. So Lords of Fifty Second Street. Uh, Lords of Fifty Second Street. <laughs> Flatbush. Yeah. The movie. Yeah. yeah exactly. Henry Winkler's in that movie, and so yeah. Slice Stallone is in right. that movie. <laughs> Uh, the Slim Kings is the name of the, of, of the band. Yeah, you can find us on uh, Facebook and stuff like that. And what kind of music is that? Oh, it's it's um, you know rock music. Um, it's three of us. It's myself, uh, like I said, Andy Antonazio and uh, Michael Sacco-Berner. And um, they're young, a whole lot younger than I am. I'm the old school guy in the band. They're in their early 30s. When I met them, they were in 27 and stuff like that. Wow. And the thing that connects us is they'll come up to me and they'll, they'll, they'll play a hip-hop song and they'll go, we, I want, we, let's write a song with this beat. And I'll say, that's a Motown beat. They sampled Motown. Right. You know? So I'm already ahead of them with, <laughs> with the, the beats that they're playing on, 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 in the hip-hop songs. Right. And uh, Michael is a great writer because, like I said before about the Shades of Grey thing, Michael can write about things being young, you know, uh, how he feels about them, you know. We got a we got a song called "Truth Be Told" that that it's about politicians and and how they hand you this bullshit all the time. You know, it just yeah. that, yeah. that's funny because I you know I think guys in their thirties never got to witness you in the uh, prime of your life and 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 that that 
that era. So it just well, it's, for them, it's got to be like surreal to be playing with you. I, I mean, it would be for me. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny because the first show that Michael uh, had gone to was a Billy Joel show, <laughs> the first concert he ever been to. Uh, wow, <laughs> pretty cool. And you were still with the band at that time. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I want to remind people about the book. The book is called uh, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Great friggin' title, man. I love it. Uh, And you can get it at Amazon. There is a link in the description. Uh, Make it easy for people. Uh, Liberty, thank you so much for this time. I really appreciate uh, all your insight here. And uh, great to uh, hear some of these stories. And uh, I wish you great luck with all the stuff you're with. uh, uh, Lords of 52nd Street, not Flatbush. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, thank, thanks for coming. Be well till we meet well, again. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. See ya. Liberty DeVito, folks. Uh, again, the book is available at Amazon. The link's in the description. Love to know your thoughts and, and comments on the program. Uh, write to me at info at minddogtv.com. Just a quick uh, programming note. Next week, next Thursday from 9 a.m. Uh, Eastern on January 20th till 1 a.m., on January 22nd, we are going to be breaking the record, Guinness Book of World Record, for the longest continuous uh, podcast, uh, as live stream podcast. 40 hours we're going for. Lots of uh, celebrities will and comedians and musicians and uh, full schedule, uh, all for a benefit for our friend Andy Andrews, who's a comedian you may or may not know, uh, who has got cancer. He's a friend of ours, and um, we're... Uh, he, as a comedian who's been out of uh, put out of work by COVID to a great deal over the last couple of years, and somebody who uh, you know lives the life of an entertainer, who we all always have the greatest healthcare coverage. Uh, he's going to be experiencing some real financial hardships, so we're looking to help him with his aftercare and get him back on his feet again. So I hope you will take part in that. Until then, uh, I have the Mind Dog uh, Coffee with the Dog Show, nine a.m. every single day. Uh, every single day, five days a week, Monday through Friday. I hope you'll join me for that. That's the show for this evening. Thank you for coming. Have a great night. Uh, and I guess uh, we'll see you in the morning if you're so inclined. Um, until then, turn on the radio.
to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.